Welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're going to be in Daniel 8 this morning. And let me begin this morning with with a few of the things that I've collected over the years. Some of these are are several years old and some of these are like happening yesterday. Uh, One is a a petition from three organizations that that look out for the persecutor of the church. We're trying to get from the Aritarian government to release Christians locked up for their faith. It states that they were locked up in shipping containers just for praying and reading their Bibles. This is February 26, 2006. They were never released and later died in those shipping containers. Another one is Christians in Nigeria have received threatening letters from militants warning of a fight to the finish and, quote, not one Christian will survive. In Vietnam, Christian workers are crippled and driven insane by torture. In Ethiopia, a Muslim extremist beat to death a man in the street for evangelizing. That was April 20, 2007. In India, police arrested 22 Christians, accusing them of insulting Hinduism. In Indonesia, three Islamic militants found guilty of of literally, I I won't say it because we have so many kids, but if you understand, to three girls. And then they posted those outside of the town as a warning to others with a note saying, we will do the same to a hundred other teenagers. Later, those same parents embraced those people who did that and publicly forgave them. In Burma, a pastor said, we tell our people to sing and pray quietly in fear of being overheard and killed. Not because they're afraid of the gospel, because they want to live long enough to tell others about it. In Pakistan, Muslim extremists attacked a Christian school because the girls were not wearing burqas. In southern Mexico... Christians are being threatened to observe traditional holidays that go against Christianity or be thrown out of their homes, literally. In North Korea, many risk their lives to share their faith. North, North Korea is listed as, as the worst persecutor of Christians around the world. In China, a Chinese mother was jailed for two years and has been recently moved to a medical center because of her rapidly deteriorating health. The 75-year-old woman is being held on what observers believe are charges that are intended to intimidate the family, which includes a son who is a Christian activist that is already in jail. An international group says that 250 million Christians worldwide will face persecution and repression this year. Many of those come from Christian websites, so... Just so you don't think that, oh, they just kind of bump up those numbers and all that. CBS News says that Vietnam, Sri Lanka, Cuba, Nigeria, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan were among the countries most likely to persecute Christians. And that list could be expanded, the moderator said. So today, as we get into to chapter 8 of Daniel, we're going to see the parallels of yesterday, in a sense, with today. Let's get into chapter 8. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision. 
after the one that had already appeared to me, in my, and he's talking about chapter 7, the, the other vision he had, in my vision I saw myself in the citadel Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal. And the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew uh, was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue uh, from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came out of the west. Uh, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him with great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him, and the goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great. The first one was great, This one became very great. That's significant. But at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. In its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which which started small but grew in power to the south, to the east, toward the beautiful land. It It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be great as, a, great as a prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to him. It prospered, it, it prospered in everything it did, and the truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take? For the vision to be fulfilled. The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconstructed. Well, the good news is, Daniel 8 is not going to be as difficult as Daniel 7 was in its interpretation, if you can believe that. Before Christmas, we covered Daniel 7, and we clearly did not understand all of it. Some of it we understood, and some of it we got, but not all of it. And I think this is because God brings us to a point and does not want us to understand every little thing He writes. I don't know why that is. He just does it that way. So we concluded at the end of chapter 7 with the thought and the idea that that, uh, to understand the Lord is to know that He is in control. When we may not understand a vision that's kind of way out there, we understand that He is in control, even when we don't see it. Even when we don't realize it. Even when we don't understand the situation that we find ourselves in. Even when when we're sure that God is not there, He is in control. He is there. In Daniel 7, we had four beasts, and those four beasts were, were you know, horrifying mutant beasts. I mean, they were kind of a combination of, of several different things and, you know, and, and, and several different type of creatures and stuff. But here in chapter 8, pretty much straightforward, a goat and a ram. And immediately Daniel is telling us that we, you know, we should have a higher level of understanding in chapter 8 as we did in chapter 7. The relationship between these two chapters 
You know, in chapter 7, we had the four beasts who represented the four kingdoms, we figured out. And some debate what those four kingdoms mean. Which four kingdoms were they? But overall, they represent four kingdoms that opposed God. We found that the climax of the vision in chapter 7 was that the Ancient of Days was on, on the throne, and the Son of Man who in verse 14 of chapter 7 says, it says about him, he will be given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And that was the main point of chapter 7, is for us to rely on that one who is the everlasting kingdom, for us to rely on that one who has the everlasting power. It is given all dominion. Now, we also found out that there's some key features in apocalyptic you know, uh, type of writings. And it's written to a group of people who are under a suffering or a persecution. It's actually written to encourage them. And we read it and kind of go, what? that's kind of whacked out. I, I, how does that encourage me? Because it goes back to who is in control. And that's the first point, that God is in control. So at the end of chapter 7, we see the Son of Man, the Jesus, who is in control. So therefore, take courage. Now we also found out in chapter 7 that the the key of the whole thing was the fourth beast. And if you you go back to chapter 7, verse 7, you see the fourth beast had ten horns. And then in verse 8 it says, The little horn comes up, and from its mouth, who is speaking pompous words against God, against the Creator. They were trying to say, we're the ones in control. We're the ones in control of this world. And, and many people relate this to, to the Caesars who say we are God. We're not quite sure exactly which, uh, which kingdoms he's talking about here. But you have an earthly kingdom trying to, play, to take the place of a, of a heavenly kingdom. They're saying we are God. And we saw that throughout chapters 1 through 6 of, of Daniel with the images of idol and, and the, different king, you know, the different kings that were there that, that said, I am in control asking and demanding for worship. So in verse 8, a little horn speaking pompous words, and and then verse 11, it's repeated again, and and verse 20 and 25, the same thing happens. So the focus was a little horn that spoke against God. Now, notice also that this beast and this one horn will rage war against God's people. And in fact, verse 21 and 25, it says here, As I watched, the horn was raging war against the saints and defeating them. Who are the saints? God's people. Who are the saints today? You and I. Verse 25, it says, He will speak against the most high and oppress the saints and try to change the, the set times and the laws. The saint will be handed over for him for a time. Times and time and a half. So as we turn to Daniel chapter 8, One of the things that Daniel makes clear to us is who this horn is and what it represents, as well as the significance of the little horn. So in Daniel chapter 8, he he will actually help clarify these things for us. You will see in verses 3 and 4, chapter 8, the, the, the ram horn coming, and then in verse 9 it says, you know, following, you know, it has something about the little horn there. But in verse 13, it's the ultimate climax The voice says, how long, how long will you allow this to happen? And in verse 14, the answer is for 2,300 days. Now remember, this is written to an oppressed people. 
to remind them that God is in control of all history. And secondly, to remind them that their suffering will come to, a, to an end point, that it's not just an everlasting suffering for his saints. One of the things we do as Christians is, you know, just like the rest of the world, uh, we want to know the ending. How many of you read the end of a book or watch the end of a movie before watching the whole thing? Some people just can't stand it. And they have to read the last page of a book. You know, we, we love to study Revelation without studying the other books like Daniel and Ezekiel that, that kind of relate to that. Because we love to read the end. We love conspiracy theories. And we need to be very careful with conspiracy theories because the Lord warns us not to get too involved in them about discussions, about endless things the Lord calls them. So it's important for us to study the totality of the Scriptures. And this is one reason why we study a book like Daniel. And, and, you know, are we going to understand every little thing? Of course not. But it's still for our edification. We still come through it with the knowledge and understanding of, of the God that we do serve. So we have to be careful not you know, to too quickly go and, and apply these to modern events. First we have to ask, what did it mean to Daniel and Daniel's readers? What was the point that Daniel was making to them? So let's go back through this really quick. and yeah, Really quick, yeah, with me, okay. Uh, verse 3, it says, I looked up, and before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. Now, the horns in ancient times represented power, usually a, a king or a kingdom. It was, you know, a sense of somebody in control. And one thing you've probably never heard, and, and some of you like to research things, you might have seen this, but most people ha- haven't. And in ancient artwork, Moses is actually represented with horns on his head. In fact, here's Michelangelo's uh, uh, sculpture of Moses. Did Moses really have horns on his head? Of course not. It was representing the power, and in, in, in a sense the majesty, if you want to call it that, that Moses had, the representation of who Moses was. And in verse 20 of chapter 8, Daniel makes it very easy for us. He says, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of, of Media, uh, Media and Persia. And it says in verse 4, he did as he pleased and became great. So we see the Medo-Persian Empire here, and, and it's introduced as, as becoming great. A goat was a symbol of power, and they were, actually, they were actually fiercer than rams. In verse 5 it says, And as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes uh, came from the west. Now remember, Daniel's in Babylon. So coming from, from, you know, modern day, think of it as Turkey or, or Greece or Italy, you know, from that direction, from the west. And it says, so it was crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. And in verse 21, Daniel actually helps us out again. It makes it easy for us. He says that this goat represents Greece. And the large horn between its eyes is its first king. Now, histor- historically, we know that the, the Medo-Persian Empire was overran by the Greeks. And I know we're kind of getting into some history. I love history. Some of you don't. You know, I'm sorry. You should. But that's just my opinion. Personal opinion, not a pastorly opinion, but you know. But this represents Alexander the Great. And, and in three years, from the years 334 B.C. to 331 B.C., he conquered the known world at the time. From Greece to India in three years. It was a huge empire, and it was happened so fast. 
But it says here, we're told that his horn was broken off and replaced by four other horns. And in verse 22, it says the four horns were replaced, uh, replaced the one that was broken off, represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. So we look back at history again. And this is easy for us. We go, Alexander the Great died at age 32. He got, unfortunately, he got drunk one night and he died. I think if my memory is correct, he caught pneumonia and died pretty quickly. So his two sons were taken out. He had two young sons and they were murdered. So the four generals that, under, that, that were right underneath him basically said, hey guys, let's not fight about this. We're just going to kill a lot of people. Let's just divide up the kingdoms. And they all said, I'll take this part, I'll take this part, I'll take this part, and I'll take this part. Great! But they never gained the power that Alexander the Great had. So far, Daniel has been so accurate in the picture of history that unfolds here. And as we get into chapter 8, we see that, you know, in, in verse 8, I mean, it says, the goat became very great. Now, in verse 4, it said that the ram was great. And here it says the goat became very great. And in the Old Testament, any time that it has repetition, and you go back to the Hebrew, this would be, and the goat became great, great. We just go very great because we go, that's too much repetition. That doesn't work for English. Anytime there's repetition in the Old Testament, it's a big deal. He's trying to make a point here. It denotes importance. But it says, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. In verse 10, it grew to the heavens. In verse 11, it says, he even exalts himself. In verse 12, it says, says that he did all this and he prospered. You know, I think it's important to point out something here. We usually associate God's blessing with prospering, don't we? We usually go, man, that church or that ministry or that man, man, they must be doing some great things for God because because it's just prospering. Is that true 100% of the time? No. Now, can that represent God's blessing? Absolutely. Don't get me wrong. Just because a church grows or or just because, you know, a ministry is just busting, you know, Samaritan's Purse. They're busting at the seams. They're doing great ministry around the world with, with bringing the gospel and shoeboxes to, you know, Christmas time to all these kids around the world. God's totally blessing that. You've seen it expanding. So, so yeah, God's blessing is associated with prosperity. But sometimes just because something's prospering doesn't mean that God's in it. I mean, just look at this king, Alexander the Great. He prospered. Doesn't mean that God was in it. Now back to the scriptures. For Daniel, the little horn that he talks about here represents Antiochus, and basically take Antioch and add a U.S. on it, that's how it's spelled, Antiochus, uh, uh, the Epiphanes, he ruled over Palestine from 167 to 164 B.C. And during those years, he had mass-murdered many Israelites. He put a halt to the sacrifices, and he started desecrating the temple. He was a very, very bad man. Notice the repetition there. Very, very bad. He was a bad, bad man. Now, something I want to point out here. Daniel's not just written. So we just get a preview of history and go, oh, wow, he was accurate. Oh, wow, I mean, this is great. Sure, God did a, you know, a great job of foretelling the future here. But according to Daniel, the climax of this is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And he is far worse than Alexander the Great. But he was nothing like Alexander the Great. He was nothing in history. He's kind of almost a, a footnote 
in history. But why is that the climax? Why is that the focal point? The reason it, why is because God is concerned with his people. That's what God is concerned about. God is not just giving Daniel a preview of history and, and we look at it and go, wow, God's pretty accurate as we read Daniel and, and you know, other, other prophetic books and we go, wow, this really matches up with the history that, that we've learned and know about. He's giving them a preview of history because he wants to warn his people about what is going to happen. There will come a man, he says, that, that will persecute God's people. And if you go back to chapter 7 and verse 21, it says, He will make war against the saints, and he will prevail against them. In verse 25 of chapter 7, it says, He will persecute the saints the most high, and again in verse 13 it says, He will trample them. God's people will suffer persecution at the hands of this man. So the first of the, of the understanding of the context of the book of Daniel... You know, that it's, under, it's good for us to understand this context. What I want to do now is, is turn to Revelation 13. So if you want to flip there, I'll have it up on the screen here. But Satan is trying to defeat Christ. But this child is, is snatched up to heaven, in, in, which is Christ dying and resurrecting. And, and he defeats death. This concept of, I truly, truly hate you. This is what Satan is saying. I hate you so much... But I can't go against you, God. Think about it like, like this. In fact, I don't know. Uh, there's a, I think it's Kathy Griffith or Griffin. I forgot the exact name. But, you know, versus Sarah Palin. Whether you like the Tea Party or not, that's not the point, okay? It's not a political thing. But, but this comedian has said, I hate you so much, Sarah Palin. I'm going to go after your children. Your teenager. She went after her adult daughter, that's one thing. She's an adult. Now she's going after her 16 or 17-year-old daughter, and eventually she's going to go after the other. That was her New Year's resolution this year. It was reported on the news. I mean, it's like, you've got to be joking. Well, this is what Satan, Satan is doing here. Satan's going, I hate you so much, God. I can't go against you. I'm going to go against your child. I'm going to go up against Jesus himself. At the end of chapter 12... In Revelations, verse 17, it says, Then the dragon will, will in, in ra- was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So is it true that Satan is literally after the saints? Yeah. God's people. Again, who are God's people? You and I. Now, oftentimes I hear someone say, man, Satan's after me. Oh, this is Satan. And I'm sitting there going, no, that's... <laughs> sometimes I say this straight to him. Sometimes I just think it. But I'm thinking, no, that's just your sin. Satan's not after you. You're just sinning there. There's a difference between the two. But sometimes when... I mean, you're just getting bombarded and you're sitting there going, this is something outside of my control. This does not have something to do with, with my lying or my deceiving or, or my going against God's will. This is actually Satan and his, his minions attacking me. And we see the proof right here that he will go after those that, that are the offspring. So we see that Daniel is written to address God's people to encourage them with the fact of... You are going to suffer, guys, in 167, 164 B.C. You are going to suffer, guys, persecution at the hands of political powers. But they will only be able to do this for a period of time. 
And then in Revelation 13, this dragon enlists two beasts to join him. And it kind of reminds you of, of Daniel 7 and 8 a little bit. And it says here in verse 5, The beast will be, will be given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth and blaspheming God and to slander his name in his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. So we see the similarities here of, of government powers coming up and you know, allowed to, to persecute God's people. Think of the list that we talked about earlier. Some say that uh, this beast is the Antichrist. And some say it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's not just the Antichrist, but it's a political force. And some say it was Nero and the Roman emperors and, or even every government in history that's represented here. But one thing I do know is that this is written to encourage us. And we're sitting here going, persecution, encourage us? I, I don't get that. It's written to show us that God is in control Whenever life is getting you down, read the, you know, the end of Revelation where it says it is finished because God is in control. But we also have this language in Daniel 8.13, the phrase, how long, O Lord, how long are you going to allow this? And in Revelation 6.9, we're going to see, the, uh, see these souls. It says here, when he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in one, long, uh, one loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now we're talking about all those who, who have been killed in the name of Christ across the world over all of time here. How long, O oh Lord? Then each of them was given a, a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were killed, as they had been, as they had been was completed. How long? How long? Now remember, this is written to encourage us, to encourage the reader to persevere. How long, O oh Lord? And he tells us, it's only for a limited time. And the reason is, it's not finished yet. The end is not here yet. Because not everyone has been killed for the faith that is going to be killed. And here is, is where many of us have a problem with this type of literature. We, we can't relate to this very well. Because you know, we don't face this type of persecution in trials and tribulations. Throughout history, the, the church has been a persecuted church. Jesus, as I said earlier, had been warned, you know, warned his disciples the night before, and says, if they persecute me, they will certainly persecute you. In America, we have some preachers that only teach prosperity gospel. Only prosperity should, be, you know, should come to God's people, they say. The adversity should not come to God's people. And if you're not prospering, it's because of something you were doing. They never teach 2 Timothy 3.12. That says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now that's a verse to memorize, right? Put it up on your mirror, put it in your car. Just love that verse. It just makes you feel all warm and cozy. But we need to understand that we live in a period of, of history where we have been lucky in the United States. Because we have not been persecuted like Christians around the world. We read about it. 
And certainly groups try to come in and tell us about it. And, and we should understand it and know it. But we, you know, overall, we've been exempt in many ways. Now, many of us, you know, our persecution is, well, the boss told me to stop reading my Bible in this part of the office. I have to go to that back room. That, oh, persecution. Now, I don't think that's right. We should stand up against it. But that's not persecution like, like they're getting around the world. The reality is that the nature of the church throughout history is that God is in control. And then the question becomes, why are these passages written? And the reason is simple. In John chapters 13 through 17, and it talks about the night before Jesus is arrested and you know, has been telling the, the disciples that they would suffer and die, and they just totally didn't get it at all. They did afterward. But right then, they didn't get it. And, and we talked about, you know, they will persecute me, so therefore they will persecute you. And then Jesus says, These things I have told you to keep you from stumbling. Jesus told his disciples in advance what was going to happen so that they would not stumble in life. When reality hits, be ready for it. The interesting thing is that we become so encumbered and tie up with, you know, we get tied up with things like, well, in the end times, what about the temple in Jerusalem? It's supposed to be rebuilt. Now, I love talking about the end time stuff. But at the same time, I don't want to sit there and dwell on it all day. i got enough things to deal with on a daily basis than worry about that. Just, you know, all the people are freaking out. All the birds are falling out of the sky and all that. You know, that happens every year. About 130 some odd cases a year happen like that. But the news just got a hold of it. So everybody's like, well, what's the end times? Is this the end times? And, and I'm sure some of you have had those discussions at work. Well, what about the Israelites? Or, or what about Iran getting nukes? Or what about Pakistan and Al-Qaeda? And you know, what about Palestine? What about Afghanistan? What about all the Muslims? We got so wrapped up in all of that and all the discussion you know, that, that Jesus gives out of Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21. Jesus kind of, he gives a speech or, or you know, he's, he's talking to everyone and he's talking about the end times. And we as American, you know, American churches, we read it as, is it happening today? Is it the beginning of the end times? You know, fish are dying, birds are coming out of the, I think I've read that in Revelation somewhere. Believe me, you'll know when the time comes. And I think if you read Jesus' sermon carefully... Jesus is actually making a different point. Because in Mark 13, verse 5, it says, Watch out that no one deceive you. Then in verse 9, he goes, You must be on your guard. Verse 11, Do not worry beforehand. Don't worry about it beforehand. I'm already telling you about it. Don't worry about it. Verse 14, he says, Pray. Verse 33, it says, be on guard, be alert. In verse 23, going back, he says, so be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. You see, Jesus' concern is not to give us a blueprint of history in the end times. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Every little single thing that, that we wish to understand that he would you know, give it to us and we would totally, do, oh, that makes sense. But he doesn't do it like that. It's really fun to read and, and try to figure out. And, but that is not his concern. His concern is, are you ready? What happens if America turns? Some say it's already turned. What happens if, if persecution really starts 
It's your work. And I don't mean, hey, can you not read your Bible? I'm talking about persecution. What happens if, if, as a Christian, somebody comes to your doorstep and drags you out of the home like they do in India, takes you to the edge of town, and beats you half to death and says, don't come back? I know of some, some uh, Indian friends that have literally had this happen to them, and they get back up and they go back into town. Now that's guts. His concern is, are you ready? See, we've been so spoiled. We should be praying for those around the world that are in persecution. You know, I remember the, the slogan from my youth, and, and I think it was Nancy Reagan, if my memory is correct, it was, just say no. It was all about drugs. Just say no. And while it's good and easy to remember, I don't think it did very good. Because I think it said, hey, go ahead and get in those situations, but just remember to say no. But the reason is, when we get in those situations, the peer pressure is so difficult that many times we can't say no, or it's so hard to say no. I think the better thing to do is to never allow yourself to get in that situation. That way you won't have a reason to say no, because you've already thought wisely and beforehand and and prepared yourself before you got into that situation. If you put yourself into a negative situation and you don't think about it beforehand, it's difficult not to say no. See, this is one reason, and this kind of seems trivial, but this is one reason why Lisa and I try not to buy sweets around our house. Because if it has chocolate in it, or if it has lots of bread stuff in it, if it's cookies, luckily there's one type of ice cream I can eat. But if it's anything that's sweet, if we buy it and put it in our pantry, guess what Alan does? Alan eats it. Now, it sounds trivial. But put it into another context. What if I have a problem with, with pornography? Well, if I had a problem with pornography, I shouldn't get on the computer when no one else is around. It's hard to say no at that point. But if I prepare myself, if I don't buy it, if I don't have it there, then the issue is not before me. Now, we always, you know, we always rag on pornography and drinking, the same thing with drinking, you know, why go to a bar or why go out with friends? You know, Lisa and I, when we were dating, she was working at a, at a home builder place and um, one of the young ladies had recently gotten married and she just loved to go out clubbing. It was early 90s, everybody loved to go clubbing, you know, the young kids, and I include myself in that. Um, well, not the clubbing part, I just, I'm Southern Baptist, I couldn't dance. Um, but, uh, yeah, I know, I know. But anyway, this young lady who was recently married, she started going out with her friends from work clubbing, and they would invite Lisa, and Lisa's just like, no, I, I just don't do that. Well, soon enough, this young lady didn't want to be married anymore because she had so much fun out there with the guys at the club. She put herself in that situation. It was difficult to say no, and of course, she ended up being divorced. What a terrible thing. She put herself there. The better thing to do is to never allow yourself in that situation. That way you won't have to say no. Same thing with gossip. Get into negative conversations. Try to avoid those negative conversations. If that means breaking off a friendship, maybe that's what needs to happen. I don't know. Boyfriend, girlfriend, for those young here, you know what? If you don't want to get in that situation, don't be alone with them at your house or when your parents are gone or at their house when their parents are gone. Because what happened? Well, it could lead to that. There's so many different situations. If we just prepare ourselves, we'd be so much better off. 
This is the message that Jesus gives in Matthew 24, 44. It's the same sermon as Mark, and as he's teaching in, in Mark and, and Luke 21. He's talking the same thing. Jesus warns them about the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom the master has put in charge of the servants in the household to, to give them their food at the proper time? It is good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. In other words, doing the Lord's work, doing what he should be doing in life. I will tell you the truth. He will put him in charge of all his possessions. He goes on and says, But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a very long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of the servant will come one day when he does not expect him, and at the hour he is not aware of, he will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this begs the question, are you, are we ready for the return of Christ? Are we ready to be persecuted for Christ? Are we ready for the persecution to come to America? Because eventually it will. This is what chapter 7 and 8 of Daniel is all about. Preparing us to be ready. We will understand some of it. You know, four horns, two horns, this horn coming off, that horn coming off. You know, it's, it's kind of like, I, I'm just so confused. We need charts and diagrams. But the ultimate point of these stories, the ultimate point of this history that Daniel writes down is to prepare us. Are we ready? Hmm. If you're not, I encourage you to get into the Word. Strike up some godly friendships. Do something to prepare yourself. In fact, compare yourself against the Word of God. Not to the point where you're putting yourself to shame, going, I can never, I can never do this. I can never make this. I can... No, it's to encourage us. To encourage us to take one step at a time. You don't become a godly person instantly. You don't become a, you know, you know, one of those people we look to, the star worth of the faith, and somebody go, wow, man, they're, just, they're godly. They're, that's who I want to be. You don't become that instantly. You start out with one footstep, and then another, and another. It's like baby steps. My son isn't going to instantly talk or instantly walk. It takes time. I want to encourage you to start preparing yourself. So when that day comes for the persecution, you're the mature one, and you can say, let me help you with this persecution to those that you see can't handle it or, or are having a difficult time handling it. That's what the Christian walk is about. Well, we're out of time for today. Why don't we pray? Lord, as we continue in the book of Daniel here for the next four or five weeks, that some of it is just so hard to understand. We pray that you, you bring out the points that you want to bring out. That we start to understand that uh, you have a plan here. These books are here and these, these words are here for a reason. You ask us to study them for a reason, Lord. And we, we pray that your Holy Spirit makes that uh, known to us. That we are ready for those that want to persecute us. That we prepare ourselves, that we get into your word, that we, we build those godly friendships that will last for a long time, Lord. Lord, I pray that you allow the Holy Spirit to, to well up in us, to give us that desire to, to want to know more about you, to give us that desire to, to do things well for you, not just to, 
go along in a mundane type of attitude as a Christian. But one where we stand up and say, that's right, I'm a Christian. And let me tell you what God has done for me. Let me tell you what Jesus died on the cross for me. Lord, we love you so much. We ask for, for your blessing. Whether that's seen for, for everybody to see and saying God's blessing us, or whether that's hidden blessing, that, that you're just totally blessing us and no one knows it. We ask for that blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. May His face never, never turn from you. May He give you rest and peace and understanding and, in this terrible world sometimes. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.